Hi, Wine Delusters. And today we're off to the Don Tracastor Channel and Bruni Island in southern Tasmania. Welcome to the Wine Delust Podcast. My name is Janine and I run a wine events business in Canberra. But my real passion is travel and my bucket list is to travel to every wine region in the world. In this series, I'll be exploring some regional Aussie wine destinations. I'll give you some tips whether you're planning a romantic getaway, a girls weekend, or you're dragging the kids along. Pour yourself a glass and let's get exploring. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is talking about today and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I hadn't realised that one of the things on my bucket list would be to visit the most southern winery in the country until I heard about it and then it was definitely on the list. So the Huon Valley is off to the west of Hobart. It doesn't look very far on a map, but it can be like some two hours drive to the edge of the Southwestern National Park. So the Huon Valley is quite huge (laughs) and a bulk of the apples grown in Australia come from this area. As I discovered in the Granite Belt, where fruit grows, there are grapes and wine. So in amongst all the great cider spots around here, there's some fabulous wineries. So the whole Huon Valley is quite big and that's going to have to wait till another episode. So today we're going to be looking at the wineries along the channel. So the Don Tracastro channel, which I have a terrible French pronunciation. So I'm going to call it the Huon Channel, which one of the winemakers referred to it as. And also Bruni Island. So this area was named after a French naval officer and explorer and a colonial governor. And his name... Again, the bad pronunciation coming up. Anton Bruni Doncastro. So you can see where the name Bruni Island also comes from. And in 1773, his boat discovered that Bruni Island was separate from the mainland. As you come out of Hobart, travelling south along the Channel Highway, there are a few wineries along that coastline, and they're the ones that we're going to talk about today. There's R.D. Muir, Resolution Vineyard and House, and Mewstone Wines. So Mewstone is located in the little enclave of Flower Pot, I met up with winemaker Johnny at their cellar door, which is going to be opening very soon. This cellar door is gorgeous. It's large, but it has the most stunning views across the vineyard and across the channel. We sat outside. It was a little bit brisk in the Tassie autumn. He was in a pair of shorts. I was in a big coat. (laughs) Tells you about the locals. So I hope you'll enjoy this chat. So I'm speaking with Johnny from Mewstone Wines and we're sitting outside his gorgeous, gorgeous, brand new cellar door. It's absolutely massive. It's made of this beautiful wood and um what's the name of the this this looks like steel the the dexian dexian the, the, the stone, stone, stone yeah, yeah it's gorgeous um and we're looking out over the channel and all the vineyards beautiful place to come and visit and because you and your brother set up this vineyard yes so matt came down on a little uh trip from sydney when he was working still working up in sydney back in 2010 um, and his friend sent him along to the vineyard just over the hill, to Mule Vineyard, and said, if you get a chance when you're home, go and taste Dirk's wines. They're really fantastic. And so I sort of arranged for Matt to come down, and we had a, a chat to Dirk, and, and Matt noticed this property for sale 300 metres down the road. And sort of on that trip, sort of we came and looked at it, and Matt said, do you think we can grow grapes here? And I instantly sort of said yes. Didn't think too hard about it. Because <laughs> um, you were saying it was a cherry orchard and then an apple orchard. Yeah, oh, no, so, the opposite, sorry. Yeah, so it's had a long history of growing fruit if you like and um but that had ceased about five years i think it was before matt purchased the property um so it had all been by the stage we got it it was already it was all pulled out so i think when matt bought it it's got one cherry tree over on the other paddock that ted left which was i think a heritage cherry of some sort that's been left for that reason that a bit of sentiment sake 
Um, so when we got it, it was a blank paddock, but it just had an amazing aspect. I, I sort of avoid love vineyards that have the, the sort of the maritime influence. Mm. Um, and obviously from a growing point of view, it's a very, there's really good air movement. So we basically have the lowest disease pressure I've come across. Um, you can't get much lower. We still haven't had botrytis after seven years. The oh, late wow. season's picking Riesling in May with no botrytis. It's a pretty hard spot to find vineyards that are, are going to do that consistently. And so that's worked out beautifully and obviously no frost risk either. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. so be, despite the fact we're so far south, because of the, the nature of the water being so close, we just don't get the hard frost in spring or autumn that might knock over your grapes. So... So, yeah, a very easy spot to grow grapes in that way. Um, I think the only downside we've found since we've, we've started growing is probably a lower yield than, um, than most growing regions around the country. This would be in the, the very low yielding category. Is that because you're so far south or is that...? Uh, I think it's largely, yes, it's, we're right on the edge temperature-wise of, of where grapes like to grow. And the reasoning down here seems to, to prosper more than all the other varieties. Um, mm. And that probably is the fact that it is genuinely probably the coolest of the, the cool climate varieties. The Riesling has taken to the site. So that was one where we planted a very small little parcel. It was only about a sixth of a hectare wow. in the original planting. So we planted like 800 vines, um, compare that to the 4,500 Pinot vines and it puts it into context. But from day one, even before we got any fruit, the vines seemed to settle in to the site quicker than everything else. And from the first year, the the quality of fruit has been really outstanding. And I guess in that sense, we look at our Riesling coming off this site and we think we've got a genuinely special site for Riesling. Mm. Very hard to make comparable Riesling from anywhere else. And we get to work with Riesling from a handful of other sites around the state. And each year, the Riesling from here just has more power, um, more depth, more character than the other parcels. And that's just testament to the site. It, 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 it works down here. So I think for us, Pinot... Yes, becomes the flagship, but Riesling's probably going to be the, the sneaky I'm second. very intrigued. I'm going to have to buy a couple of bottles of stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. You mentioned before about your other label, the Hughes and Hughes, because I have actually uh, seen that at a couple of restaurants in Canberra, and that's what made me want to come and visit you guys when oh, I, I was down it. here. Can you tell me the, about the two different labels? So Mewstone is the, is the vineyard. Yep. Is the vineyard here in Flowerpot. Only fruit grown here at Flowerpot will go into the Mewstone label. Hughes and Hughes became the negotiant label, if you like. So as we went to start the journey in 2016, and we were going to have our first crop that we were going to take to bottle of Mewstone, I sort of called Matt and said, "Oh, I think maybe we we're never going to have a, we're not getting much fruit out of our little thing. Why don't we buy a little bit of fruit mm. and do a little side project?" And my sort of want was always probably not to do it as a baby Mewstone or anything like that. It was like, "Look, let's do this as its own separate entity. It's not from the estate. We really want to." I'm a bit of a stickler. I like it to be really clear that this is a state grown and this is not. And then the side project sort of took off over the next two years and we sort of went from, I was meant to buy three tonne, I bought 10. <laughs> Matt was on holiday, so he couldn't <laughs> tell me off. He went skiing. He learns his lesson. Don't don't go away in March or Johnny will do silly things. The next year, basically, we we'd managed to sort of sell enough of the wine that it was like, okay, we can buy a little bit more fruit this year. We ended up buying about 20 tonne. And we sort of just use and use the idea was it's an earlier release as well. So we're making wines that we can actually take to market within the year and hopefully fund the next vintage from the previous vintage was the, the, the build model. And, and because that worked and the label took hold, then we're able to grow that business, that part of the business up quite quickly 
And so ultimately now that's that's the vast bulk of what we actually process. We process about 80 tonne, of which 75's Hughes and Hughes, and we get wow, yeah, whatever we get off here, which yeah. this year was a poultry sort of five or six tonne. So hopefully in a good year we can get 10 off here. But yeah, Hughes and Hughes has sort of become the bit of the cornerstone of the business in that way, but Mewstone's certainly still the, the, the crown. Well, this is the um, the location, like you said. So yeah, yeah, it's the jewel in the crown. And so what do you grow here? It's, it's Chardonnay, Riesling, and Pinot, and Syrah. Excellent, yeah. yeah. And, and the great um, Tassie ones, the, the Pinot's sort of the flagship around here? I think Pinot for most people would be the flagship. I think it's uh, you're probably either known for your sparkling or for your Pinot. Yeah, I think Pinot is it is that wine of the moment. It's the it's the one that everyone's searching for, and it's sort of it's been a very fortunate time, I guess, to be a new Pinot producer. Now, to something completely different, when people come and visit um, down here, what's some tips? Um, obviously, come and visit your gorgeous cellar door, <laughs> which when is going to be open, open very <laughs> shortly. But what other what other things should people check out when they come down and visit? Well, I think the beauty of coming south of Hobart is that the, the sort of the Hewan Channel region um, has now got a handful of really awesome producers across a, a really wide variety. So we have friends over at Grandview Cheese mm-hmm. doing some really amazing sheep cheese across the road. Um, we've got some friends down the road doing, and they don't have a cellar door yet, but hopefully one day in the next few years, a cider house that they're opening, Old Twelfth. And then we've also got Woodbridge, which is a really awesome eatery um, just in the in the local town that on weekends, you know, that, that it's got a, an amazing aspect. You sit there, you're sitting on the water, and it's just... Yeah, it feels, it, it feels like you're on holidays when you're on holidays, which is... Um, <laughs> you get to live here, it's even better. <laughs> exactly. um, and then I think the other, the other hot spots are probably over at Signet, which is only a half an hour drive over the hill. You know, there's the coastal road to get there if you want, the scenic route. And then there's, um, there's a couple of really good wineries, Sailor Seeks Horse and um, some cideries and some, a couple of really good eateries. And it's just a real, it's a lovely little feel of a town with lots of craftsmen. And I think that's part of the journey in the channel is... You can almost just go for the drive, and you'll you'll find something to do yeah. with your day. Um, ideally, probably being organised because a lot of the producers, I think, of anything in the channel are quite small, quite mm. artisan, and so it's not the space that's as easily accessible for tourists unless they've thought ahead. Yeah, I would say that's probably my big tip for travelling in the channel and the Huon, and that's the beauty of this region at the moment. It's kind of bubbling away quite quickly and I think within a year or two it'll be at another three or four things you can do down this, oh, this awesome. part of the world. Um, you were talk, telling me just before about your other project with the cider. Yeah, yeah, so that's the classic of what happens in the channel. Our friends across the road who, who we know through sort of through family have started a, a cider house called Old Twelfth and they sort of called just as vintage was starting to kick off and said, oh, is there any chance we can use your press? And I said, sure, why not? Just give me some juice. Um, so basically we sort of did a little collaborative project with them. They, they sort of came and they were milling some apples and putting them through the press. And then we took 500 litres of juice and we've just made 600 bottles of cider that, that's about 80% apple juice, um, 20% grape juice. And we found an aromatic grape variety called Cigarette, which is very random. Yeah. And, uh, Wait, is that from somewhere? Is that that's South from, Tassie? Yeah, or? that's from Dover. So that's from the, the most southern vineyard in the country. And so we fermented it with some cigarette and some Pinot skins and the apple juice, co-fermented that, pressed it off, and we've, we've bottled it as if it was a pet nap, basically. Great. So so we'll just do a cloudy cider. Let's call it a scrumpy. We'll probably have about 9% alcohol, so... <laughs> Sounds good. You won't, you won't need too many come summer. But yeah, so it's, it's little projects like that that I think are really typical of this sort of part of the world yeah. where there's, like I said before, there's a lot of young producers doing new things 
chatting to each other and opportunity sort of knocks. And if you're open to going, oh, yeah, let's have a go, then there's lots of opportunities at the moment to do some really interesting bits and pieces. Oh, that sounds awesome. Thank you so much for your time. That's really Pleasure. wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> so when you drive down the Channel Highway, you come across the town of Kettering. And from there, you can catch a ferry over to Bruni Island. So Bruni Island's tucked up along the coast in between like Tassie and the Huon Valley and the Channel. There's also a winery down there called Bruni Island Premium Wines, and it's the most southern winery in Australia. When I visited, I did a tasting with the winemaker, Bernice, her daughter, Maddie Jane. He's actually a musician who you may know from Triple J, and she's helping her mum out at the cellar door waiting for COVID to pass and music and festivals to get back to normal. She shares a bit about the history and we go through some of the tastings with her. She starts off by talking about her grandmother and this great picture that's on the back of their bottle of sparkling that's named after her. So that's the RD named after Ruth Dillon. Um, and Gorgeous photo of her on the back and a parachuting Yep, yep, attire. in hand. <laughs> Jump straight out of the plans. <laughs> Very cool, back in her era. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Not her. Um, yeah. And then all her oil paintings are on the labels, that's cool. Yeah, so they're all little broody landscapes and she did oil paintings, like they were, they were small anyway, they were like postcards or bookmarks kind of thing. So they're all, yeah, little spots around Bruni was the home. So, so did your parents or your grandparents set up the vineyard? So grandfather was into apple orchards. Obviously Tasmania is big for apple orchard growing. So he had a lot of experience with that and he basically told mum, we're gonna plant a vineyard. So he propagated the vines himself up at the house and then, yep, went right, we're planting a vineyard. So that was kind of par. Um, but yeah, so mum's the winemaker and my brother's pretty much taking over now. Oh wow, and so when did they plant it all? So it would have been, it was about 1998, I think. So then I think it was four or five years after that was the first vintage. Yeah. They grow Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. They also make some cider and she tells us a bit about it here. So the ciders are a fermented cider made with champagne yeast. And so they're, these two are drier style um, and quite alcoholic. So we call them truth serum round here. <laughs> they're quite dangerous. So made from our local apples and they're named after my grandfather. So that's the that's my brother, my brother's kind of thing that he did. So there you go. So it's yeah. So not like a beer, so like not too bubbly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's quite still almost just like doesn't even taste alcoholic. It's even more dangerous. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, I see what you mean. That's apple isn't it? Yeah. 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 And just to finish up, they're open Saturday nights for dinner, as well as tasting seven days a week. So Bruni Island has been on my radar for ages. I remember seeing Nick Haddo on the TV show Cheese Slices with Will Studd several years ago, and they were talking about raw milk cheese, which is something that was new to me, and I've made a few orders over the years. So it was definitely on my wish list to visit Bruni Island Cheese while I was there. We booked in for a private tasting, and cheesemaker... Alex, who comes from a wine family in Mudgee, he talked us through all the cheeses. Siona Nicado has also ventured into wines in the last few years and we got to try those with the cheese. It's definitely a must-do to do while you're on the island. Bruni Island Cheese store gets quite busy, so doing the tasting was a really great way to get more information about what you were trying and also to try some of the wines. So they also have beers that you could do a tasting with instead of the wines. And there's also tons of relishes and they also have a bakery on site. So we picked up some sourdough with some cheese 
So we had a great dinner that night. If all this chat about Tasmania has made you curious about tasting some of their wines, then I've got the perfect interview coming up with Katrina, who's the founder of Wines of Tasmania. We started last year during the pandemic. It was sort of, I guess, as the borders started to close, there was this kind of it's light bulb moment where it was like, how on earth are all these sort of smaller family-owned cellar doors going to still sort of share their brand and tell their stories to people if they're not able to come to Tassie? I was sitting and chatting with some of the people that I know from the wine industry and I'm, I have a background in, in um, marketing and public relations and, and brand sort of communications. And I was like, if we could actually create not just sort of, you know, support for individual brands, but an umbrella brand essentially to handpick some of these brands that all kind of sit in this quality boutique space where if someone tried, you know, a selection of those wines, they'd be getting the benchmark of, of Tassie wine. So it just seemed like a, a no-brainer where if you could kind of collaborate together with um, other like-minded brands, we could really actually sort of elevate the, the Tassie wine brand, you know, a big way and, and not have to kind of do this individual efforts to, to get one brand out there. But in fact, yeah, have this much more premium umbrella brand to, to sit under, which is where Wines of Tasmania came from. I think that's wonderful because I think quite often we find our boutique wines when we visit those regions. And if we don't have the chance to visit, then that's a really great way to get like a taster from a lot of different types of cellar doors and wineries. That's, I guess, the other big difference in, in the way that we're promoting it is that you've got this you know, really authentic way of talking about the families, the wine families and, and the hard work and all of that stuff because they're living it, breathing it and, and able to share it directly through this channel. And so it's um, a six pack of wines that people can opt in to the buy. We have a six pack, which has sort of got a selection of different level, entry level to the premium end as well. So that's one of the packs, but we have four other packs as well. Oh, um, so there's a, a mixed three and there's a mixed red, mixed white and mixed sparkling as well. So there's quite a few, you know, sparkling tragics out there that love the, uh, the sparkling pack. And obviously Tasmanian sparkling is mm. quite um, unique and um, really has put its, its name on the global map. The Tasmanian sparkling brand is certainly punching well above its weight, yeah, that's for sure. I agree, I agree. Part of even this Wines of Tassie, Tasmania business is that the people that are feeding back that are saying, oh, just I never would have picked that bottle in a bottle store because I didn't know it was good. But yes. the fact that someone else has taste tested before it turned up on my doorstep, yeah. you know, I know I can open each bottle. I can bring the bottle to a, a dinner party or give it to someone as a gift and know it's without quality. any hesitation that it's quality. Yeah. So yeah, there's that kind of, that's the, the bonus there. But people are they might not really know what they're they're drinking or they might not have had many pinots as well that's the thing of when we yeah. are here as well we get people that want to you know have you got a red and you say yeah we've got a pinot noir and then they taste that go oh and they're expecting a shiraz or they're expecting a cab yes. or something really heavy and you say well no pinots are a different grape there's other characters here that you need to be looking for so and also the cool climate isn't it yeah, yeah, we've got Shiraz here, but it's completely different to what someone would expect out of South Australia or WA. Yeah, I think people are wanting to learn and, you know, continue to do that. We're not going to just sit still and think that the the stuff we drank at uni is what wine is. Yes, 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 we've all evolved, <laughs> thank goodness. 
thank goodness. <laughs> so you've lived in Tassie for quite a long time now. So for um some local intel, like what would you do with kids when you're visiting yeah. Hobart? You know, I'm a mum with three kids. We've been that family in the car where kids are screaming in the back and you're just like, where can I stop that I can find food, find a clean toilet, give them a run around and then we've done that and now we can move on. So trying to avoid anything, the fast food restaurants. So where do we go? So Richmond's such a quaint little town and there's um, lots of little shops in there that you can just walk through. It's it's just gorgeous. And so, yeah, there's a really great bakery there. So you can get your pies and sausage rolls and kids can sit out. There's a little courtyard there as well. For the grown-ups too, there's plenty of restaurants in the area that are attached to the cellar doors. And so mum and dad get to do a bit of a wine tasting as well. And then, yeah, in Hobart, I'd say there's a really great park just south of, of Sandy Bay. It's amazing as far as, you know, easy parking. There's a nice little walk along the foreshore. And there's huge equipment um, for the kids to play on. And there's also Prince's Park, which is just on the, the edge of Battery Point, uh, which is right next to Salamanca. There's another amazing park in there. So parks are great for small yes. kids. You just let them run their feet off and then start the next bit of driving. And then I guess the only other place we've been, we frequented a few times, would be Cradle Mountain. Um, it's a great little getaway, so very easy to get to. But there's so many different little walks there of different abilities. So from when the kids were toddlers, we would go there and we'd find walks to do. Wombats and all this sort of stuff that are just wild there that the kids can see. But now that they're a little bit older as well, we've then done the Dove Lake Walk. Also the Gorge, I guess, in Launceston would be the other place where kids can walk and at, at all ages as well. So, yeah, absolutely. There's quite a few places that if we want to have a quick getaway, they would be my picks. Oh, that's awesome. That's that's really great. That's really helpful. Thank you so much, Katrina. Yeah. Yeah. So what else can you do? As with everywhere in Tassie, there are so many great walks of all different lengths and abilities. On Bruni Island, you can trip around the produce between the cherry orchards, get shucked oysters, handmade chocolates, and so you can collect stuff all through your travels during the day to have a great dinner. There's also a pub down at Adventure Bay and they do boat trips from there. Right at the bottom of the island is a lighthouse and you can do tours climbing to the top and there's some at sunset also. On the channel there's a little town of Margate and they've got these markets that are in train carriages. And the Peppermint Bay Hotel also has beautiful views and a great bottle shop that does takeaway as well. I was also told about how you can do kayaking trips down to the hotel for lunch which sounded fun in the warmer months. The towns along the channel are really accessible to the rest of the Huon Valley and there's lots of quaint towns there and lots of cider, spots and wineries. So there's heaps to keep you occupied for your visit down there. So some quick stats. From Hobart down to Flower Pot is about a 45 minutes drive straight down the coast on the Channel Highway. To get to Bruni Island, you drive down to the town of Kettering and catch the ferry across. It's about a 30 minute drive and then it's about a 30 minute trip on the ferry and the ferry runs every 20 minutes. It's super convenient. From one end of Bruni Island to the other is about an hour or just over. There's lots of places to stay, Airbnb accommodation, boutique accommodation and holiday parks in both locations. For something a bit upmarket, the Peppermint Ridge Retreat is about five minutes inland from the town of Woodbridge on the Channel. It's a beautiful environmental self-contained apartment with a mezzanine with a king bed overlooking the views of the Channel and it has a fireplace. 
On Bruni Island, the Captain Cook Holiday Park was convenient, clean and comfortable, but for something upmarket for couples, check out 43 Degrees. I really loved my time in Southern Tassie and this is just the tiniest little bit to explore, but gosh, it was fantastic and I hope you enjoy. Till next time, happy wine travels. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe now to get each episode as they drop. You can also check out this podcast on YouTube and see pictures of the region and the people I've spoken to. Go to windelust.com.au. That's W-I-N-E-D-E-R-L-U-S-T.com.au for everything discussed today. You can also subscribe to my newsletter to hear all about my upcoming events and other news. Till next time, happy wine travels.